0: hi my name is Saul, and this is the story of london podcast my probably insane attempt to tell the entire chronicle of london in one big long narrative tale in the last part i went over the formation of the market town of ludenwick the saxon established trade town located one mile west of the old remains of the roman settlement of londinium i described how it was in its first few decades quickly establishing itself as a centre of local and not-so-local trade. But in this part, I hope to briefly describe how London was to cease being just a Saxon settlement, but how it came under the influence of one of the more powerful states on the island at the time. It's time to look specifically at the events from the 620s until the year 666, as we get to the story of London Chapter 4 The Mercian Takeover To begin our story, to give it the justice and context it needs, I am afraid I must shift our attention for a short while northwards of our central character, to discuss the land that was to be the first legitimate claimant upon London. Mercia was always a tad different from its surrounding Germanic polities. In time, it would cover quite a large area, which appears to have been a mixture of many tribes and many peoples. There were significant number of Britons living within its endlessly moving borders, and as well as that, it also saw differing tribes of the foreign newcomers be integrated into its ranks. This wasn't a realm built out of conquest it seems, more compromise and gradual assimilation. It first appears in 604, and you get the distinct impression of a people who found their strength in their diversity. They were survivors, it seems, back in the earliest days, and yet dominated by both Wessex in the south and, above all, Northumbria to the north. To understand how this group of people ended up taking over Ludwig, we have to, I'm afraid, look at how they went from this weak position to a position of strength. How they became, in the space of just 40 years, the nation who would define what London was to become. This story, then, begins with the tale of a great warrior, a true English legend. In an era of remarkable individuals, he stands out. For me, he is far more impressive than any mythical King Arthur type. I talk of a man known to us now as King Pender the Strong. Alas, we know less about him than we would like, as his contemporary biographers were either from Wessex, and he screwed with the people from Wessex, or from Northumbria, and he screwed with the people from Northumbria. But even allowing for their claims that he was this terrible pagan who waged war on good, clean-living Christians, what we do see is a man who utterly changed the course of British history and was arguably one of the greatest battlefield generals ...to ever emerge on this island. The Mercian heartland is located in what we today call... ...the Midlands of England... ...the area around the rivers Trent and Severn. This region is surrounded on all sides by potential enemies. To the north was Northumbria itself... ...overlords over the region when this story begins... ...under the rule of the mighty High King or Bretwalder, ...a man called Edwin. To the east were their fellow Angles the kingdoms of Lindsay and East Anglia, rivals. To the south, the Saxon kingdoms of Essex, Wessex and Sussex, with Kent beyond them, and to the west was the fractious and fiercely independent nations of the Welsh. It would have to take a formidable general of some skill to be able to carve out a large territory under those potentially hazardous conditions and they would also have to be an excellent administrator and dynast to make that territory stick. Penda seems to have been both. His story is exceptional and bloody. He seems to have been a joint king, or more likely a sub-king of the Mercian peoples, below his older brother at first, but while his brother seems to have been far more the politician-working-behind-the-scenes type, Pender was a simpler creature, His speciality was warfare. He bursts onto the national narrative first in the year 628, where we find him leading the forces of Mercia on a sudden attack upon Wessex, reclaiming the Lower Severn Valley from them after about 70 years of their occupation, and supposedly surviving assassins sent by Wessex to kill him afterwards. Five years later, in the year 633, he is one of the commanders of a grand alliance of forces from Mercia, East Anglia, and Wales, who came together to throw off Northumbrian domination. Pender was involved in the death of High King Edwin of Northumbria. Then, between 635 and 641, he is campaigning against East Anglia, seeking to regain lands they had taken from Mercia, during the campaign, he ended up killing two of their kings and bringing those lands back under Mercy and hegemony. In 641, this pagan warlord joins forces with the Christian forces of Wales again to take on a resurgent Northumbria under a new king there called Oswald and defeats and slays him also, breaking up Northumbria so it can't threaten Mercia again. By now his brother was dead, And Pender seems to have become the most powerful king in England. His rise to the top paved in blood and the bodies of dead kings, it seems. Only, despite being portrayed as this violent, pagan, barbarian warlord, Pender comes across as a most unusual Dark Age despot. He was undefeatable in battle, utterly brilliant. His warbands were rightly feared, organised, loyal and brutally effective, but when given the chance to claim new territories of his many vanquished foes, he doesn't take it. He goes to war to reclaim territory from East Anglia or Wessex, or to throw off dominance by his northern neighbours, but never to take those areas over himself. And he had plenty of opportunities to expand his territory. A few years later, when the King of Wessex humiliated Pender's sister by marrying her and then putting her aside to marry someone else, Pender is upset enough to march into Wessex, utterly destroy their entire armed forces, exile the king in question, and then march back home. When that exiled king from Wessex is then granted asylum in East Anglia, Pender, still annoyed, turns up with his warbands, kicks down their doors, and exiles their king, but again, with the whole region prone before him, he simply returns home. He does not seek to take over or destroy the place. In fact, he only returns to East Anglia, because that particular exiled East Anglian king, a man called Anna, decided to sneak back and reclaim his throne in 653, and again, we see Pender raise his powerful warbands, destroy his enemies, and this time kill the opposing king. And again, with the opportunities to rule over the defeated kingdom, he vacated the opportunity and simply returns to his own lands. So Pender could have been the power of this land, an English Caesar, lord of all he surveys. But every bit of evidence we have suggests he simply had no desire to do this. And despite his pagan beliefs, and he was proud of his pagan beliefs, he seems to have had no issue with Christianity being preached in this nation and in the lands he controlled, with his sons and daughters becoming Christian, and with other nations just getting on with their own Christian business. Again, I'm only mentioning this because his story was to have a profound impact upon London, and because of that, I have to mention his equal and opposite, the Yang to his Ying, an ambitious, mercenary, double-dealing despot, a man called Oswiu of Bernicia. Oswiu ruled one of the parts of Northumbria that Penda had left after he'd broken its spine so it could no longer subjugate Mercia. Oswiu was a craven, cowardly sort of figure who had once seemingly tried to rebuild Northumbria as a power but when Pender had shown up with his warbands Oswiu had submitted and gave up without a fight. Oswiu clearly wanted more power but he couldn't find it as long as Pender... Was providing a natural balance to his ambition. If he couldn't match Penda militarily, Oswiu needed another weapon, a political weapon to use. And he had it Christianity. Oswiu may have been a kinslaying, murdering lech, but he portrayed himself as a champion of Christianity. Yet Even in that sentence, there is more complexity. This era was one of great ambiguity and depth. You see, Oswiu was an advocate of Celtic or Irish Christianity that was emerging from Irish monasteries and spreading across northern England. As such, he began to use this variation of Christianity as his personal political weapon and began to wield it most effectively. It was this Irish Christianity which Oswiu demanded Penda's son convert to in order to marry his daughter. It was Irish Christianity which was then established in the region of the Middle Mercians, which borders onto the Kingdom of Essex and with it the town of Ludenwick. And it was this Irish Christianity that Oswiu used to get the pagan king of Essex to convert to. As I mentioned in the previous chapter, Essex was nominally in charge of Ludenwick, and it would find its rulers, being either Christian or pagan, dependent upon, well, who was in charge. The story goes that the then pagan king of Essex travelled all the way up to Hadrian's Wall to be baptised under Oswiu's discerning eye, before returning with a group of missionaries, who were led by a Northumbrian monk called Sed. Spelled C E D, said, who had trained at the powerhouse of Irish Christianity in Britain, the monastery of Iona, was so successful in reconverting the residents of Essex to Christianity, and that included Ludenwick, that the monastery made him the missionary bishop of Ludenwick. Indeed, at the same time this was happening. Oswiu's Irish version of Christianity was beginning to make inroads into Wessex as well, with a Frank who had travelled to those monasteries called Egelbert sent down to Wessex and gaining influence there. Using Irish Christianity, Oswiu seems to have diminished the power and influence of the rival Roman Catholic version of Christianity, with the Power and influence of the Archbishop of Canterbury seemingly limited to just the borders of Kent, and Oswiu seems to have been involved in several acts of political shenanigans, all designed to give him more power in the nations surrounding Mercia. And this is probably why Mighty Penda marched north in 655 to get Oswiu to stop whatever. Reindeer games he was currently up to. Oswiu responded to form, he panicked, subjugated himself before this king who had never lost a battle, and showered him with many gifts and treasures to say sorry. Appeased, Pender's army was rewarded for their service, broke up and marched home. And it was on that journey home, probably at night, in a storm, when the King of Mercia's army was camped beside a flooded river, preventing it from having any manoeuvrability, that Oswiu and his forces launched a night ambush, finally slaying the man, who for 30 years had been the Napoleon of his era. Pender the Strong was dead, and Mercia was in crisis. Now, if this was a history of Mercia proper, I'd be getting into lots of wonderful detail about the aftermath and the reactions of the family members and other nations, but I do need to focus on London. I do remember that. So, Pender dies in 655. Oswe of Northumbria seems to be in charge of everywhere. But after some vicious events that seem straight out of the novel The Game of Thrones, Pender is succeeded by his son, Wolf Hira. And this is important, as Wolfheera is the man who I feel properly has Mercia take control of London. And to understand how and why I can make that statement, we now need to focus on the years 661 to 666, years that were to change the future of Ludenwick for centuries to come. So we will not get into the massive backstory of why Wulfira of Mercia launched a comprehensive invasion of the south of England. Just know it was part of him avenging both the death of his father and his brother's murder at the hands of Oswiu of Northumbria and his allies. But basically, in 661, Wulfira led his forces south and went on a big tear, expanding mercy and control all over the region. His armies smashed into the forces of King Senwale of Wessex. And the records state that Senwale, quote, continually suffered heavy losses at the hands of his enemies, unquote. And eventually we know Wolfhira's forces reached as far south as the Isle of Wight. Now, the fall of the Isle of Wight in 661 is really important because of what Wilfira did immediately afterwards. Supposedly Wulfhere gave the island and some Wessex territory he'd just taken in Hampshire to one newly appointed King Æthelwulf of Sussex. He gave him this territory on the single condition Æthelwulf, who was pagan, should be baptized. Æthelwulf of Sussex agreed. Quote, "At the suggestion and in the presence of Wulfhere, who Received him as a son, unquote. What does that mean? Well, Aethelwalk wasn't just submitting to the Christian faith. He was submitting to Wulfhere being his overking or overlord. I mention this because it shows some significant changes in mercy and policy here. Wulfhere was not his father. Pender had run things with a seemingly live-and-let-live live attitude he wasn't into conquest, and it had cost him. Wulfira seems to have learned from this. Now, he wasn't going the full Oswiu; he wasn't trying to be like Northumbria and claim all the lands, but he was clearly looking to have his neighbours accept him and Mercia as the dominant hegemony, probably for defensive reasons. And as such, with his war of 661... Mercy and power now extended all the way to the south coast. And we know that during this era, a few years after Oswiu had tried to make Essex his compliant pocket Christian nation, the two new kings of Essex, Sigheri and Sebi, were subjects of Wulfhira. Mercia was nominally in charge of Essex from around 661. But mercy and control, for me, was far more than just via proxy. The proof of this lies in the immediate aftermath of the War of 661, and we briefly need to refocus our attention on a few wider events just for a final moment. You see, while all this was going on, as you may have picked up from what I was saying, England was undergoing a large theological conflict, between the differing branches of Christianity, the Celtic or Irish version, based out of the Abbey of Iona, and the Roman Catholic version, based out of the Archbishopric of Canterbury. And without getting too much into a rather detailed story, and trust me, if I did, we could be here for years, the upshot of it all was that there was a synod held at Whitby, wherein basically the Roman Catholic version became ascendant. Their version became the acceptable version of Christianity in the land. This caused a problem for King Senwell of Wessex, because by now that Frank I mentioned earlier, called Agilbert, who had been trained up by the Irish monks, was now his Bishop of Dorchester. And this was awkward, as Senwale wanted to show his adherence to the new style of Christianity. And so he removed this man and replaced him with another Frank a man called Wine. The problem then became Wine apparently ordained some Welsh people as priests without Senwell's permission and for that and perhaps other reasons the king got mad and so bishop Wine ended up fleeing him and his kingdom of Wessex. And this was why the newly appointed bishop of Dorchester found himself in the court of King Wulfhira of neighbouring Mercia, and it was here something incredibly significant took place. As we had said, Ludenwick had a bishop already. Bishop said, now he had returned to his homelands to attend the Synod of Whitby, where he acted as a translator, we believe. But while he was in the north, he had contracted the plague and died in the year 664. So, crucially, at this exact moment, Ludenwick didn't have a bishop. Meanwhile, you had Wine, who was technically Bishop of Dorchester, but who didn't want to go back to serve under Senwale of Wessex. And a deal was struck. Wine gave Wulfheera a lot of treasure. And the King of Mercia gave Wine the title of the Bishop of Ludenwick around the year 666. Or, in other words, I believe we can show that by 666 of the Common Era, Ludenwick wasn't just some Saxon market town. It was part of Mercia. We know Wulfhere was behind a reorganisation of the city, building new structures, and probably ordering the construction of Ludenwick's first defensive works, so ditch build around the town, although we're not too sure about that, and some maintain there was no ditch until many centuries later. But for me, the really remarkable thing is, Mercia was to have either total dominion or an overwhelming influence upon Ludenwick for the next 200 years. Yep, I'm claiming 200 years. I'm claiming London was Mercian ...much longer than it was Wessexian. Now this is a controversial claim... ...and I'll talk about it a bit more in the next chapter... ...but for me, Mercia was to rule Ludwig ...through the next 19 rulers... ...18 kings and one lady. Some of them would be in charge for only a brief time... ...months or a year or so... ...but some would be in charge for decades. Wilfira would be king of Mercia for 20 years... His time only beaten by the last Mercian lord of London, a man called Burgred, or Wulfhere's brother, Aethelred, who was in charge for 29 years, and by the greatest of all the Mercian kings, Offa, who ruled it for 39 years. Two centuries is a long time to have a dominant political force around you. It's time for you to be born and raised with a political status quo, to be part of something, to live your life, to raise your children, and for those children to do the same. Generations of families of people born and raised in Ludenwick, I believe, saw themselves as Mercian. Yes, we can downplay a modern sense of nationalism giving identity because those kind of social dynamics are centuries away from where we are in time. But I do fundamentally believe that human beings like to know who they are. They need to find a sense of identity. For me, the residents of Ludwig, the first version of London as we know it, I cannot believe that they ever define themselves as Saxon And created some identity based on something as ephemeral as tribe. No, theirs was a political identity they partook in and found purpose with. I believe they called themselves Mercians. Now this is a big claim. And I do intend to add meat to the bone of this argument, but... I'll save that for the next part. For now, with Mercia seemingly handing out the Bishop Frit of Ludenwick for some shinies, I'll end part four of the story of London. For those listening on the podcast, thank you for your time, and if you enjoyed it, please leave a like or an upvote, or whatever works as a positive affirmation. In the next part, a little bit more on Mercia and Ludenwick and how it became their main market.